We're going to be studying Ephesians chapter 1 and John. So we'll be moving around our Bibles a lot. There actually won't be anything on the screen today. And uh, we're going to focus on the text. But we are going to be looking at a lot of scriptures. And so I want you to be, be ready for this. Uh, Ephesians, John, then back to Ephesians is where we're going. Let's pray and ask God to really open his holy word to us that we would grow in grace. Father in heaven, we thank you so much that you saw that it, your word would be written down under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, infallible, inerrant, and preserved through the generations, and that we can sit here today with a Bible in front of us, and knowing that we have a word from you, not the philosophies of men, not the, the attempts to piece together some sense of meaning, but we have a clear word from you. And that word has come to us through your son and through the prophets and the, and the apostles. And we thank you that we have this wonderful, wonderful treasure chest for us as we go through our pilgrimage here. We pray this morning as we study this letter that was written to a church very similar to ours. We ask that you would please be with us, and we pray that you would help us. We are going to soar through eternity past and into the present and then into the future, and we're going to see a plan unfold that you made billions and billions of years ago, and we're going to wonder at the grace and at the fact that we're included in this, and we pray, Father, that you will help us. We pray that you will help us, that our minds would not be scattered and our minds would not be distracted, but that we would love you with all of our mind right now and all of our heart and all of our will, and that we would seek after you, knowing that if we seek you, that we will find you, that, you, that if we draw near to you, you will draw near to us. Draw near to us now, we pray in Jesus' precious name, amen. Last week, we looked at and we're focusing on this passage in Ephesians, verses 3 through 6. Let's look at it. Let me read it one more time. Remember, this is a, a, a praise. It, it's actually Paul worshiping. And he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted in the Beloved. Now, there's so much in those three verses. It's just unbelievable how much is in those three verses. And so we're trying to just piece it through and understand it. And last week, we dealt with the kind of shock that people get when they hear the word chosen and predestined. And we tried to work through that last week. And what I'd like to just sort of summarize that uh, by saying, because so many people say, well, when you, you, you give us the idea that God chose before the foundation of the world certain people, that's not fair, that's not fair. I want you to understand that the point of this text has nothing to do with what is fair in, in, in a sense. And, and what, I, what I mean by that is this. When you get to the point that you are calling out to God for grace and mercy you are no longer appealing to God based on what is fair. Let me th let's think of this in, in the courtroom. If you were in the courtroom, and in the courtroom, the evidence against you was so great that you knew you lost the case. At that point, you can only do one thing. Throw yourself on the mercy of the court. All you can do. But when you throw yourself on the mercy of the court... You don't, you're no longer talking about justice and fair. You're not saying, I demand justice here. Because if you demand justice, justice is going to convict you. You're going to go to jail, okay? You say, I want what's right and fair. Well, if the judge gives you what's right and fair, you're going to jail. So what do you do at that point? You say, I throw myself on the mercy of the court. 
God, judge, please have mercy. Please extend grace. Please, and you're actually asking, God, judge, please do for me what I don't deserve. Judge, please do for me the opposite of what justice is demanding of, of you right now. Judge, please, out of the kindness and goodness of your heart. And we need to understand, dear friends, that that is the whole context of what is being said here. Because this passage in the book of Ephesians, if any book is, this book is about grace and mercy. So, for instance, look at what we have in verse uh, 6. This whole thing is being played out to the praise of the glory of his grace. And, and, and for instance, Paul then, as, as you just jump ahead in chapter 2, remember what, what Chris read for us here, chapter 2. If verses 1, 2, 3 of chapter 2 are true, which they are, that, verse 1, we were dead in trespasses and sins. Verse 2, we walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. If we, according to verse 3, were conducting ourselves in the lusts of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and the mind. And if we were, it's true, we were by nature children of wrath. Please don't cry out for justice. Cry out for mercy. Because, and what we need is, look at verse 4, but God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, for by grace you have been saved. And then he says he raised us up together with Christ. We're going to get to that. And in, in the ages to come, he's going to show his kindness to us in Christ, verse 7. And then in verse 8, he says... For by grace you have been saved. So this is all about grace. This is all about grace. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to explore a little bit more deeply the riches of verse 4 and the idea in verse 5, the idea that we were chosen in him before the foundation of the world. And what I want to do is I want us to go to the book of John now to do that, okay? And I'm going to the book of John for two reasons. So if you want to flip to John uh, at this point, that would be good. In fact, go to John 6. That's where we're going. And while you're going there, let me give you these two reasons. Number one, when people start saying, oh, you're a Reformed Christian, you believe in predestination and, 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 and God choosing, choosing people, they fire one verse at you that they think is just going to completely dismantle you and dismantle your argument. And, of course, that verse is John 3.16. But doesn't the Bible say, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever will believe in him will have eternal life? And my response to that is, Brother, if you know anything about me, you know that I love John 3.16, and I preach John 3.16, and I call people to Christ all of the time. I absolutely believe you. I absolutely believe John 3.16, that whosoever will believe has everlasting life. But what does John and what does Jesus say about how a person comes to believe? What does John and Jesus in the book of John say about those who don't believe? What does John and Jesus in the book of John say about people who once didn't believe and maybe have gone 50 years without believing and then suddenly they believe? What does John say about that? What is, what is, this, what is this idea of believing and how does that work so that a person can hold the same theological doctrine of Ephesians 1 and say, absolutely, whosoever believes? We're going to look at that in the book of John. The second thing that I want to do, the reason I'm looking at the book of John is this. And let me just give you a warning here. And, and this warning was highlighted for me this week because I wrote this sermon. And then I got an email from the Dominican Republic. And it was one of the pastors there. And he was asking me about somebody who was teaching this very thing. And I said, I can't believe you're asking me this because I just wrote it down in my sermon to warn my own people about this. And that is this. Don't ever let anyone draw a wedge between Jesus and Paul. Don't ever let anyone draw a wedge between Jesus and Paul. And you'll see this constantly happening. It has happened all through history, a wedge between Jesus and Paul. And they, they don't like Paul. They're going to stick with Jesus. Paul's the guy who talks about chosen before the foundation of the world, predestination. Paul's, he's, he's a downer. Uh, we're going to go with Jesus. 
And, and, and it's actually very actively true happening today. There are people who identify themselves as red-letter Christians. And that means we're Christians. So we, we, we don't get into all Paul and Romans and Ephesians. We just follow the red letters of Jesus where Jesus just says love. Jesus doesn't talk about all that other stuff. Uh, there, there's also, they also go under the name of progressive Christianity today. And be very, very careful about this because it sounds good and they're super good because they're millennials and younger. They're super good at making websites and marketing things and making it look good. good. But be very, very careful about that. And this was the old liberal Christianity of the day. We just believe in Jesus. We don't go with Paul. So what I want to do today is I want to show you, we're going to be red letter Christians for, for a little bit right now. Because I'm going to show you in the red letters that Jesus taught the exact same thing that Paul taught. And I'm going to show you in the red letters that, that what Jesus taught is going to be, it's going to enrich us as we go back to the book of Ephesians. So what we're going to do is we're going to, we're going to do sort of a survey in some ways of the book of John. We're going to look at some, several verses. And then we're going to go back to the book of Ephesians and look at how Jesus and Paul are saying the same thing and how glorious it actually is. You remember several weeks, this is actually right before Christmas, one of the things that we looked at in the, in the Bible is when you look at Jesus' witness, one of the things that Jesus says is, I was sent from the Father. I was in heaven. I dwelt before I came to earth in heaven, and the Father sent me. Now, we can see that, like, for instance, in John chapter 6. Turn, look there, look at verse 28. It says, and then they said to him, what shall we do that we may work the work of God? And Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he sent. So you see there, there's the, the call to believe in Jesus. And there's the sense that Jesus has been sent by God the Father. Look at verse 57 in the same way. He says this, as the living Father sent me. So there's this idea that Jesus was sent into the world. I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. Now, Jesus calls us to believe he was sent from the Father. Now, notice then the other thing that Jesus teaches in this text is that those who believe can only believe when they've been enabled by the Father. For instance, look at John chapter 6, verse 44. Jesus said this, no one can, now look at that word there, that's a word of ability, John 6, 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me, there's that idea of being sent, draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up at the last day. Look at verse 45. It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught by God. Therefore, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. So come to me. Whosoever believes, come to me. Who are the people that will come and believe? Those who have been drawn by the Father, enabled by the Father to believe. Look at verse 65. Jesus says this, Therefore I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by the Father. Now notice the granting by the Father is previous to them coming. Okay? So Jesus is referring to this people who have been granted or enabled to believe in him. And how does this work? Well, it works by the power of the Holy Spirit working in a person's life, giving them a new heart, giving them a new will, giving, opening their eyes, and drawing them. And with that new heart and that new will, then they believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, we're right here at verse 65. Just jump up a few more verses. Look at verse 61. When Jesus knew in himself that his disciples complained about this, he said, does this offend you? He says, what if you should see the Son of Man ascend where he is before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. But there are some of you who do not believe, and there, Jesus knew from the beginning who would not believe and who would betray him. And he said, therefore, I have said to you, no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by the Father. Turn back with me to John 3. I started off quoting John 3, 16, which says that for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. 
God did not send, there's the idea of God sending his son. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. <clears throat> now, we've already seen three, three, three chapters later, Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the Father calls him, unless the Father grants him, unless the Father enables him. Well, in John 3, where John 3.16 is, Jesus said the exact same thing just a few verses earlier. Look at verse 3. John 3, 3, Jesus is speaking with Nicodemus, and he answers and said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you that unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Unless God grants you the miraculous new birth, you will not see, come, or believe. That's how God enables, through the power of the Holy Spirit. Notice what he says in verse 5. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. So do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. The powerful work of the Holy Spirit, the new birth, an opening of eyes, giving a new heart, giving a new will, enabling the person to come, that's how a person believes, through the sovereign power of God. Flip to chapter 1. And notice what John says there in chapter 1. But as many, in verse 12, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name. Who are those people who have the right to become children of God who believe in his name? They're the ones who, verse 13, were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of of God. God must work in their lives. God must save. And so you see, now notice here, this is the exact parallel of what Paul has been saying. Jesus says that if you're in the flesh, you cannot believe, you will not believe, you have to be drawn by the Father, you have to be enabled. Paul said in, in Ephesians chapter 2, he said, we were dead in trespasses and sin. Jesus said, unless you're born again, you cannot hear, see the kingdom of God. Unless God powerfully comes and works and moves and enables you to believe, you will not believe. Paul said that being dead in trespasses and sins, God in his mercy and grace made us alive together with Christ. And so they're actually saying the exact same thing. Now, let's go one step further. So we're, we're, we're God sent his son. You, you, he's, you have to believe you believe through the enabling of God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, and you're saved. Now, let's go further back. Let's go further back. That's what Paul did. Now, Jesus is going to do that, too. What happened before? Before God actually sent his son into the world. What happened then? Well, according to Jesus, a people were given to him by his father. That's the words that Jesus uses. A people were given to him by his father. Go back to John 6. Look at John 6, 36. John 6, 36. But I say to you that you have seen me, but, he says, and yet do not believe. So I got some who see me, but they won't believe. Then he says, verse 37, all that the father gives me will come to me. So here the Father is giving Jesus a people, and every one of those people will come to Jesus. That sounds a lot like Paul. The one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. So the Father gives them to Jesus, and when they come to Jesus, Jesus is not going to cast any one of them out. Verse 38, for I have come down not to do, from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. The Father sent me to do this. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that all that he has given me... Now, notice how that's past tense. It's actually Greek. It's the perfect tense, which means a completed action in the past which has present implications. And so he's saying, all that the Father has given me, I will not lose... I shall lose nothing but shall raise it up at the last day. So this is kind of looking at it like going back in time and looking at the Father giving these people to Jesus and Jesus saying, I'm, gonna, I'm going to save each one of them. Then verse 40, it says this, and this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him 
may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up on the last day. This is sort of looking at it from man's perspective, from our perspective. Everyone who sees the Son, in other words, who's been enabled, whose eyes have been opened, he sees the Son, and believes he will, I will raise him up on the last day. And this is, the, this, is this, this, this idea, this teaching, that these people have been given to me. Now, Jesus goes into better detail of that in John 10. So look with me to John 10. Jesus elaborates in John 10 on those people who have been given to him and his relation to him and what it means. And it's absolutely beautiful language in John 10 because it has to do with the shepherd and his sheep. Now, in John 10, it's the, the, Jesus begins by giving us this illustration. In fact, if you look at verse 6, John uses that word. He says, Jesus used this illustration. And the illustration is really an interesting one because it has to do with ancient times and such. And apparently in ancient times, you know, a bunch of guys had their flocks of sheep. And at night was the dangerous time for the flocks of sheep to be out there. And so they would herd them in. And it seems like they herded them into a common sheepfold. They herded them into a big corral, okay? And they hired a guy to watch the corral and to be at the door. Okay, and then each morning the guy would get, the shepherd would go and he would go and there's a corral of all the sheep and he would call out his sheep because he had this relationship. The sheep knew his voice and they would come and follow him. And that's where he's at. That's what he's talking about. Look at verse two. But he who enters by the door of the shepherd is the shepherd of the sheep, and to him the doorkeeper opens and the sheep hear his voice. And he calls his own sheep by name, and he leads them out. And when he brings out his own sheep, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. So in this illustration is this intimate relationship between the shepherd and his sheep, who know him, who recognize his voice, who hear his voice, and who instinctively just begin to follow him. So then Jesus opens up this illustration, and, and we don't have time to go into great detail on this. He begins, actually, verses 7 through 10, to use the illustration in several different angles. And he says, I'm the door, and, and, and any, I'm the only way that you, can, that you can come through. He talks about that. Then in verse uh, 11, he introduces himself as the good shepherd. Look at verse 11. I am the good shepherd, he said. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. But a hireling, he who is not the shepherd, one who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf catches the sheep and scatters them, okay? The hireling flees because he is a hireling and does not care about the sheep. Verse 14, I am the good shepherd, and I know my sheep, and am known by my own. Now, see, he's drawing this up, and now he's drawing this reality. I'm a shepherd, I have sheep. And my sheep know me, and I know them. They hear my voice. They recognize my voice. Now look at verse 15. He says, as the Father knows me, even so I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have the sheep. I lay down my life for them. Verse 16, other sheep I have which are not of this fold. Now, this is, he's referring to as the Gentiles. It's us, okay? If you're, if you're not Jewish here, you're a Gentile, it's us. We're that other fold. They, they, they didn't even have this on their radar when Jesus was speaking this in Jerusalem. I mean, in Israel, they didn't have this on their radar. But Jesus is saying, listen, I have others out there, and I'm going to bring them in as well. Them also I must bring. And they will hear my voice, and there will be one flock, and one shepherd. So this is the plan. I'm going to gather together all of my sheep. I'm going to bring them in. I'm going to lay down my life for these sheep. I'm going to give myself for them. Look at verse 17. Therefore my father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it again. My father loves me because I lay down my life. This is really a beautiful thing. This is a beautiful verse, by the way doesn't mean that the father loves him more. It just means that the father just so is endeared by his willingness to lay down the life for the sheep that he has been given. Look at verse 25. Same chapter. People were doubting and they said, tell us if you're the Christ. You know, and he says, I've told you. Verse 25. Jesus answered said, I told you I'm the Christ. And you do not believe. The works that I do in my father's name, all the miracles, they bear witness of me. But you do not believe. Why? Why do they not believe? Why do they not believe? Well, he answers that. He says, verse 26, 
because you are not my sheep, I, as I said to you. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they know me. When they hear my voice, they listen and they come. My sheep do. And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my Father's hand. My Father, now notice this, who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. And so you see, these sheep, they have been given to Jesus in the past. Jesus came as their shepherd to gather them and to die for them and to give them everlasting life. And he and the Father are absolutely determined that not one of these sheep are ever, ever, ever going to be lost. Let's just read another John red letter summary. Look at John 8. Verses 42 and 47 to 47. Again, you'll notice how all of this ties together. All of this is part of Jesus' teaching. We've read very little black. We've read a lot of red here. Verse 42, John, Jesus says, if God were your father, these people are saying, Jesus just got called illegitimate, by the way, and they just said, we're not born of fornication like you were. We're, you know, God is our father. We know your wife, your mom got pregnant before Joseph and Mary got married. And so they're throwing that in his face and they're saying that God's their father. And Jesus said this in verse 42. He said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and came from God, nor have I come of myself. He sent me. Why do you not understand my speech? Then he answers this question. Because you are not able to listen or to hear my word. See, they're not sheep. They can't, they don't hear, they don't recognize the voice of the shepherd. You are of your father the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of liars. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which of you convicts me of sin? And if I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? He who is of God hears God's words. Therefore, you do not hear because you are not of God. So you see, this is the exact same thing that Paul was teaching. Now, let's go back to Paul. Let's go back to Paul now. By the way, Paul was, Paul was an enemy of Christ. He was met on the road to Damascus. He was confronted by the Lord Jesus Christ himself and appointed an apostle. So these people who don't want to, they, they want to deal with Jesus and not deal with Paul. They're, they're breaking Jesus's will right there themselves. So let's go back to Paul and let's apply all of the richness of what Jesus has been teaching us about shepherd and sheep and his love and being given to the Father. And notice that that's the exact same thing that Paul is saying here. Look at verse 3 again. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Now Paul zooms in. That's, that's a broad statement. Now he zooms in to before time began. Verse 4. Just as he chose us in him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption by sons, uh, as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. Now notice verse 6, to the praise of the glory of his grace by which he made us accepted in the beloved. What is this saying? This is saying this, and, and, and let's apply all that Jesus taught us now. What's this saying? This is saying that before the foundation of the world, very simply, it's here, I'm not making this up, God chose you. Now, if that doesn't blow your mind, I don't know if there's anything that will blow your mind. God chose you. And that was in conjunction with, if, I'll just put it in this way. We can't talk in this way about God, but in this way, I'm going to put it this way. There was a discussion in heaven. There was a conversation in heaven between Father and Son and Holy Spirit. 
The focus here is father and son. And the father says, I have chosen these people. And I, it is my will and desire to exercise my grace toward these people, my mercy, to show forth the glory of my grace and my mercy. And it is my will that these people be saved. And I'm giving them to you, my son, to save them for the purpose of saving them. See, they're in need of mercy. This is, he's looking ahead and seeing us in the context of our sin. They're dead in trespasses and sin. They won't come on their own. They're enemies. They're aligned with my enemy. They follow the prince of the power of the air. They're following their lusts and their flesh. They're by nature objects and children of wrath. But I love them. And I want to show forth the glory of my grace. And I am determined that these people will be saved. And I'm giving them to you, my son, to save them. To do the work of a salvation. To purchase their salvation. I'm giving them to you. They're like a group of sheep. And I'm giving them to you. And you will be to be their shepherd. And Jesus does this. Jesus takes this on. Now, let's pause here for a second. Jesus, for, for Jesus to say yes, for Jesus to accept this responsibility of these people, of you and I, for Jesus to say yes, the implications are immense, immense. Kids, think about this. How'd you feel the last time you got a really, really deep cut? Blood was spurting everywhere. Did you not panic? Like, Ma, Dad, help! I'm bleeding to death. Wah, wah, crying, crying, crying. Wah, wah. We get scared of blood. We don't like blood. We don't want to lose blood. Look at verse 7. In him, we have redemption through his blood. You see, this was going to mean that Jesus was going to take us on. He was going to take on our guilt. He was going to take on our sin. And, and he was going to purchase us. And he was going to pay for all of our sin. He was going to deliver us. We weren't nice people. We weren't good people. We weren't good church-going people. We were sinners. And he, he loved us. And he took us on. Love broke through and he said, I'm going to take these people on and I'm going to leave, I'm going to do this. But listen, in order to save these people, he needs to shed his blood. Well, guess what? He doesn't have any blood. When Jesus is at the right hand of the Father in heaven as God the Word, he has no body. He has no blood. He has no muscles. He has no bones. He has nothing. And so he has to take on a body in order to get blood, as it were, in order to sacrifice himself for us. In other words, this, the fallen race of Adam, the fallen race of Adam is going to be a human race, a flesh and blood race, a race that has fallen. And he's got to enter into that race. He's got to enter into humanity. So he's going to have to take on a body and take on humanity, and take on muscle, and bones, and nerve endings, and a brain, and, and a heart, and, and be able to feel pain in, in a way that he never did. He was God the Word. He was eternal. He was an eternal, powerful being, a spiritual being, but he had no physical body. He was going to have to take all of that on in order to take us on, and so he did. He did, and we just celebrated that in Christmas. He came. He took on human flesh. He, and that means he had to, he had to be born and, and placed in a manger. It means he had to have wet diapers on sometimes. It means he had to, to fall and hit his head against furniture as he was trying to walk. It means he was going to have to babble. The word, the word through whom all things were created, the word had to learn to talk, had to learn to speak. He was going to bake in the sun, pounding nails as a, as a carpenter. He was going to live among sinners all these mean people who were going to gossip and, and say all kinds of nasty things about us. I went through John recently, and I looked at all the bad names people called Jesus. I was kind of paying attention to it. They said he was mad. 
They said he was illegitimate. They said he was a deceiver. They said he was demon-possessed. They said he was a Samaritan. They hated Samaritans. They even said he was a demon-possessed Samaritan. That was a real kick. They said that Satan himself was living within him. Those were some of the things that were said about the very Son of God. He took all of that on. He took all of that on for us. He was scorned. He was rejected. He was, he was despised by people. He was arrested. He was spit in the face. He had to take all of that on. He was mocked. His back was beaten open until his skin was lacerated and he bled. He had a crown of thorns put on his head to make fun of him. He had spikes driven through his hands, spikes driven through his feet. He was hung up there to bleed to death. And then the father's wrath had to turn upon him. So again, go back before time. We're having this meeting, and the father is saying to the son, I need you to take them on. I need you to save them. I need you to be their deliverer and their savior. And they both knew, in the oneness of the Trinity, they both knew that that meant the father was going to have to turn upon him and pour out his wrath for their sins upon him. He's asking Jesus to take all of this on. And then Jesus, the eternal one, was going to have to walk through and experience death. Because that was the punishment that we had. Death, he was going to have to experience death. He was going to have to walk into the dark shadow of death. The eternal one, for whom death is absolutely powerless to touch him, had to take on a body in order that he might die. This is what it meant to take on these sheep. Of course, then he was going to be buried, and he was going to rise again from the dead, and he was going to be exalted, and he was going to forever be our chief, our shepherd, our, 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 our one, our savior. That's what he took on. And he took all of this on for us and to please his father. And you know what's amazing? He did it. He said yes. He said to the Father, certainly. That wasn't a surprise to God the Father, by the way. Because the very nature of God is others-oriented, self-sacrificial. It's amazing. How, how, it's just so amazing that we have this God who's so good that, that he thinks. And Jesus, hearing his Father's will, said, absolutely, I'm 100% in, yes. And then seeing these sheep, Jesus said, absolutely, they're mine. They're my sheep. We were, we were deeply embedded, as it were, in Jesus' heart. But you know what's wild? You know what's wild? Jesus didn't just do this for us. At that moment, we were in him. We were united to him. The Father united us to the Son. You see, look at it again. Look at verse 1. Remember union with Christ? All of the spiritual blessings are in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. We were adopted by, through Jesus Christ, and we are accepted in the beloved. And then look in verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood. In other words, what happened is, is that Jesus didn't say, yeah, give me the list and I'll, I'll keep a list of these people. Yeah, okay, that's who they're. No, that's not what happened here. We were united to Christ at that moment. We were placed in him. There was a covenant union, a mystical union, a powerful union between us and him. Remember when we talked about union with Christ, the bond between husband and wife? If the husband gets a raise, the wife gets the money too. If the husband inherits a mansion, the wife inherits a mansion. Why? By the nature of the bond between the two of them. And so we were bonded. We were united to Christ at that point. And therefore, in a very powerful way, when Christ was on this earth... And, and living, we were in him in that way. And so when Christ went to the cross, we went to the cross. And that's why the Bible says we were crucified with Christ. We were crucified with Christ. And when Christ died, we died. And when Christ was punished for sin, our sins were punished. We were there. And when Christ was buried, we were there. And when Christ was raised from the dead, we were there. And when Christ ascended to the highest of the places in heaven, we're there even now. 
Look at how Paul says that. Look at chapter 2 and verse 4. But God who is rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses and sins, look at this, made us alive together with Christ. There's the union. By grace you have been saved and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. According to verse 6, we are right now sitting in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus because we are in union. We are united to Christ. You see, from that moment on at that meeting, God will never and ever, never, ever dealt with you apart from Christ. Never. You'll never be seen by God apart from Christ. All of Christ's riches, all of Christ's blessing, all of Christ's righteousness, all of Christ has done upon the cross, Christ's death, Christ's burial, Christ's resurrection, Christ's power, Christ's glory is all yours because you are in him. And you are in him because before the foundation of the world, God looked upon you by name and chose you by grace. We couldn't make this up. This is so amazing. We couldn't make this up. That's who you are. If you are in Christ Jesus right now, that's who you are. If you are a believer in Christ Jesus, that's who you are right now. Now let's just let this sink into our souls. Let's just kind of meditate this in a little bit here. Let's let me say this. You are absolutely safe. Do you have anxieties? Do you have worries? Do you have fears? Do you wake up in the middle of the night scared? Do you have panic attacks? You worried about the future? You worried about your health? You worried about the economy? You worried about where the world's going? You worried about your kids? Worried about where your next meal is going to come from? You know what Jesus says? Why are you worried? You have been chosen by the Almighty God before the foundation of the world to be His child forever. He turned to His Son and sacrificed His Son on your behalf. He feeds little birds. He clothes little flowers. That bird doesn't fall to the ground apart from his will. He's everywhere. He's all powerful. He controls everything. And he chose you before the foundation of the world to be his child. He's preparing a place for you now so that you'll live with him forever. What in the world do we have to worry about? And that's why Jesus says, be anxious for nothing. Don't worry. He's going to take care of you. He's going to feed you. He's going to provide for you. You're safe. You're secure. You have a Savior. You don't have to worry. Here's another way we should meditate this into our hearts. Do you realize how beloved you are? Do you realize how loved you are? By God. I'll answer that for you. Nope, you don't have a clue. We don't. We don't have a clue. Somebody who has loved you so much that his love for you has gone on for billions and billions and billions of years. Before the sun that is shining in the sky right now, before the stars were even created, you were beloved by God. And God gave you as sort of a precious, precious responsibility to his son to secure your salvation. You were loved before your parents were even born. Your grandparents were even born. You were loved before you were even conceived in mama's womb. You, have, you were loved for billions of years before you were ever even born. You were loved, and you are loved right now, and you will forever 
be deeply, deeply loved by an infinite God who purposefully chose you to be his child. I don't know any other way to describe what verse 4 is saying right there in verse 5. Chosen in him before the foundation of the world. Dear ones, you saw your need at one point in your life. You cried out for mercy. You cried out that God would save you. You came to Jesus. Somebody invited you, said, come to Jesus, come to Jesus. You'll find him in him, all that you need. You'll find in him life. And you came to Jesus and you found Jesus. And as you came to Jesus and you started opening his word and you started realizing it, what should have happened to you, and what I hope is happening is, you start to lose, takes your breath away like, this thing has been planned out before the foundation of the world. I was chosen before the foundation of the world. When Jesus died upon the cross, I was in, in, in a very spiritual and, and, and wonderful sense. I was in union. He was dying for me, and it was a union between him and I. I when, when, when I came to Christ, I was actually being drawn. I thought it was all me. I thought I just somehow just woke up, and then I just got smart, and all of a sudden I believed in Jesus. Here I was being called powerfully and effectually by God through the power of the Holy Spirit. This has all been of grace. This has all been of God. This has all been for his glory. This is who he is. This is what he is. This is what he has done. Dear friends, let this sink in. Let this form your identity. Let this thrill your heart. Let this move your will and tongue and, and, and heart to praise and to worship him every day. Let this move your will to obey and to serve him. Be all in for Christ because he was all in for you. And that's what Paul is getting at. That's what Paul wanted to sink into the hearts of the Ephesians as he wrote this book. You have been chosen in him before the foundation of the world. Are there any of you here today who do not know Christ? You've never asked for mercy. You've never asked for mercy. You've never thought that you needed mercy. You thought you're pretty good. At least better than most. At least there's guys in prison that are worse than you. We know that. Okay, we'll go with that. But you somehow thought that you, you could make it on your own. You somehow thought you had control of everything. You were in control. You could do this. But you're starting to realize that you're not the great person that you thought you were. In fact, you're starting to realize you're not in control. In fact, maybe some things are controlling you. Your emotions. Your need to, to be loved by somebody. Drugs, the crowd, friends, the world. Things are getting a little out of control. Maybe you have things that you're embarrassed about. Things you don't want anybody to know. But then those aren't your big problem. As bad as those are, those aren't your big problem. You know what your big problem is? Your big problem is God. He's your big problem. You say, wait a minute, you just said all this nice thing about God. What are you talking about? If you are not washed in, of all of your sins and you stand before an absolutely holy God who hates sin so much that he came up with this plan that his dearly beloved son would die executed on the cross while he poured out his hatred towards sin and punished sin and his wrath sin on his own son what in the world do you think this holy God is going to do with you when he has you in the palm of his hand and you've rejected his son and you came traipsing into eternity thinking that you're good enough for God because you're not as bad as those guys who are in prison and you're good enough to go to heaven. And now you're standing before a God who absolutely hates sin and is so holy that he sent his son to die for the punishment of sin. And there you are covered in all of your sin. You only have one thing that you can do at that moment, isn't there? Cry out for mercy. But guess what? You died. You're dead. The day of salvation is gone. And at that moment, there will be no mercy. There will be wrath. 
what Jesus experienced on the cross for me and, and other believers here is now going to be poured out upon you. Now, you want to read some red letters. Nobody spoke more than the man who spoke in the red letters about the terrible, eternal sufferings of hell. When God says, get away from me, I never want to see you again. Dear ones, that is why it is so important that we come and say to God, now, mercy. Please have mercy. Please give me grace. Don't treat me as my sins deserve. Give me mercy. And you know what God will do? He will give you mercy. And that mercy will be in the form of his son, Jesus. He says, I will give you my son, Jesus. And forgiveness and everlasting life and all that you need is in him. Have you come to Jesus? Have you trusted in him as your savior? Have you gotten to the point that you realize I need him? And have you turned yourself to him, turned away from everything that you know displeases him and turn yourself to him? Oh, my heart's desire is that by the grace of God, God is drawing you right now to Jesus. He's drawing you to see. He's opening your eyes and he's drawing you to see the glory of salvation in his son Jesus and that you will unite yourself to Christ. Let's pray together. Father, what a great God you are. We praise you, we worship you, we glorify you. We magnify you that you are the God of grace and mercy. There's not a person in this room who deserves to go to heaven. There's not a person in this room who deserves any of this love and mercy that you poured out. Father, we deserve your anger. We deserve your just sentence. We deserve hell. But you are so good. And for so many of us here, you have been so good to us. And now you open our eyes and we can say right now, thank you for choosing us before the foundation of the world. Thank you for giving us to Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, for taking us on. Thank you for all that you did to secure our salvation. Thank you that we're united to you even now, and death won't change that. Thank you for dying for us. Thank you for taking our sins. Thank you that we're forgiven of everything, everything, forever, because of you. We thank you, we praise you, we worship you, our great God. We just ask that you will help us to love you, to gratefully love you with all of our hearts because of what you've done for us, all of our will, our bodies, our minds, our thinking, our energy, our careers, our money, everything, everything we lay at your feet. Thankfully, lay at your feet. Here we are, Father, use us. Use us for your glory as our way of saying thank you. Father, if there is any here right now who are saying, I need Jesus, I need you, Jesus, I pray that you will help them. I pray that you'll hear their call. I pray that you'll draw them to yourself. I pray that at this moment, they will say, Lord Jesus, I do trust you. I need you. I come to you. And that they will find in you everlasting life. Thank you that you are such a great Savior who is still saving even today. We praise you in your precious name.